Hi, my name is Josh, and I help with the pack on Sunday mornings, and you're listening to the Bloomingdale Church Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Bloomingdale Church Podcast. My name is Max Terman. I am your moderator, and I am joined this week by Easter Trivia Champion, Dan Marcello. Hello. I thought you were gonna do it in reverse. By worship director Scott Reed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we're not even saying hi anymore. We're just applauding. <laughs> hey, hi. Associate Pastor Bill Calvin. Yeah. <laughs> and special guest youth co-director Chelsea Ryan. Yeah. All right. Happy to be here. Bill applauded no less enthusiastically for himself. <laughs> I yes. hope I have that confidence. He's happy to be here. 68. That's from watching a lot of television. <laughs> Chelsea, uh, as our guest, will you open us in prayer? I'd be happy to. God, I just thank you for the opportunity we have to come together and talk about mental health, uh, mental illness in the church, and just how important that is, God, that we learn how to love each other well in the midst of our brokenness. I pray that you would guide our time together, that you would speak through us, that we would have wisdom, and um, you would just bring to mind all that we should talk about as we engage in this topic together. In your name, amen. 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 Scott? All right. I love this question. Would you rather be somebody's pet cat or somebody's pet dog? <laughs> I'm a dog. I already know this. So you're the puppy friend. I'm the puppy friend. That's how Chris refers to I you. think, well, your husband, Chris, is quite the puppy himself. He is, in fact. That's he, true. He bounds up the stairs and then like hangs his tongue out and is like, hi, guys. <laughs> he does, in fact. He's like, I'm going to go talk to Max. He runs upstairs. <laughs> that's like Max if, is home. If dogs could talk, that's what they would say. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go see if there's food. Yeah. Um, so I would rather be a pet dog. First of all, I feel like pet dogs... I feel like pet dogs are treated better than pet cats. Mm. At least I don't like cats. So I know that like if I had to choose between a puppy and a kitten, I'd take a puppy. If I had to choose between an adult dog and an adult cat, I'd take an adult dog. Like I just don't ever want to be summed a cat. Up both of those and if I had to choose between a dog and a cat, I'd take a dog. I was thinking out loud. <laughs> just, just broadly processing. in every category of age. Of exactly. I'm just I want to make sure that there's nothing I'm leaving behind because as we know, rule number 2 of the podcast is there's no take backs. Or that's rule number 1. Well, now it's rule number two, because there's no team. <laughs> <laughs> so, I would be someone's pet dog. Hmm. I would also choose the dog. I'm much more of a dog person than a cat person. Okay. I'm oh, taking the cat. I don't want to live in a box outside. <laughs> I want to own the home, and the cat owns uh, the home. This is a good point. Mm. That's Bill Calvin, owner of the home. <laughs> That's why we don't have cats. Because <laughs> he wants to stay the owner. Well, actually, we don't have cats because I'm allergic to cats. Me too. Yeah. That's yeah. another reason you wouldn't want to be one. Yeah. Be a Are you also life. allergic to dogs? Mm -mm. No. I would rather be a pet cat. They can get loved when they want it. Like, be like, oh, I'm, I'm feeling hmm. affectionate. I can get snuggled. Or, like, please leave me alone. And they also have, like, the ability to do that. Hmm. But they are also really polarizing. So I don't know if I'd like the ramifications or like like what that the connotations of being a cat. Right. People they're very people love them or hate them. Who so. hates dogs? Some people. Some people, people hate dogs. People have been like hurt by dogs. Yes. yes. But I think when you first see a dog, your natural inclination is like that thing loves everyone. Mm -hmm. Why would I not love it? Yeah, they're so incredibly loving. Yeah. Also, I just want to lay in the sun all day. That's what cats do. And they sleep. Yeah. So that sounds awesome. Fair. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I am way a dog person. I love dogs. I would rather have a dog. I would rather be a cat. There it is. I see that. Here's why. Uh, for one thing, <laughs> dogs, <leave> you alone. <laughs> dogs they, do, they mess up. What happens? They get yelled at. You don't yell at a cat. What's the point? <laughs> the cat just runs away. Very true. Cats don't get yelled at. Cats can go to the bathroom whenever they want. They can go to the bathroom wherever they want because, again, they don't get yelled at. Also, oftentimes cats can eat whenever they want. Uh, it's it's definitely rarer, I think, for a dog to have like an open food dish, but sometimes cats do just have like an open food dish. So That's what we had. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, like Chelsea said, you know, there's that being able to just be like, I'm done with you, and then leave. And people are just like, oh, okay. well, that's cats. <laughs> I think you get a lot more free passes as a cat. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Plus, you get to see in the dark, so that's cats, pretty cool. Incredibly oh, yes. proud creatures. Yeah. I despise them. Oh. Dogs, you're not going to find anything more humble than a dog. Mm. Maybe like a turtle. 
<laughs> Maybe. Yeah. A turtle will never think it's better than you. Yeah. So I would rather be a cat, but I would rather have a dog. Mm. Future dog, I'm coming for you. <laughs> I can't believe we only have two dogs in this room. Well, in the words of, I think, Disney, and someone who's calling on the phone right now, everybody wants <laughs> to be a cat. <laughs> Bloomingdale Church, would you like to be a dog or a cat? <laughs> Just put them <laughs> up to the mic. Uh, I think someone should sing, Everybody Wants to Be a Cat. Yes. Uh, Chelsea, cats. would you sing that song for us, please? No. <laughs> I won't. But nice. if you want to hear me sing, join us on Facebook live stream at 6 p.m. Mm. Monday through Friday, and you'll hear me there. You guys just finished doing... Lament, uh, like like a, a night of lament, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And before that, you did a hymn sing. Yep. For so a it's, special service. So it's a special service every other Friday. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And those are live too. Yeah. We live stream them. They're Sometimes they're pre-recorded. The lament was live. The hymn sing was pre-recorded and then premiered live. Okay. What's the next one going to be? Um, Is it a surprise? It's not a surprise. I just haven't like fully decided if I want to do this yet or if I want to wait longer. But I think it's going to be like a kids' night. Oh, kids wow. and like maybe some day camp songs and yeah, that's nice that's coming up I, I don't know if we'll do that now or if we'll do that closer to actual day camp mm. but that's i don't have any other ideas i know people want another hymn sing mm-hmm. but also i haven't really been preparing for a hymn sing and that was a ton of work and we're already halfway through this week so it'll probably be the kids night <laughs> <laughs> i think we should do a gregorian chant night Dan, Bill and I would be an. Dan, I will, you I will hold now? you to that, <laughs> and I will say this was because of Dan. <laughs> uh, well, let's get into the topic of the week. Topic of the week this week is brought to us uh, by Virtual Day Camp. After 41 years, Day Camp is going virtual for the safety of children and their families. Day Camp 2020 will emphasize practical lessons, teaching kids patience, kindness, joy, and love in these challenging times. The Day Camp team is hosting a new experience that will premiere live on Facebook each day at 9 a.m., and the video recording of each day's program will also be available on the page every day after 10 a.m. Virtual Day Camp, June 22nd through 26th at 9 a.m. on Facebook Live. Visit bloomingdalechurch.org slash daycamp to learn more. Um, I'm really excited that we're still doing that, even though everything is is shut down. Grateful for a creative mind like Morgan's to, to yeah. make that happen. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah, she's definitely the right person for it. Well, moving into topic of the week, just as some context... Today, as Chelsea mentioned during her prayer, we're talking about mental illness. Um, Every year, 20% of adults experience symptoms of a clinical mental illness. Um, And our societal understanding and approach to both mental health and mental illness has evolved considerably over the last 20 years, um, even the last 10 years. So Chelsea's here with us uh, for the first in a periodically recurring series on mental health and wellness. Uh, Chelsea, you are an MA in counseling, right? Yes, I, the weekend of Mother's Day, I would have been home in Massachusetts walking in my graduation from Gordon-Conwell, mm. um, but I did complete my Master's of Arts in Counseling um, in January of 2020. So mental illness can take a lot of different forms. Could you give us a little bit of context for a discussion of like, what do we mean when we talk about mental illness? Yeah, mental illness can be a lot of different things. Um, it can have a lot of different categories. For example, the, the Diagnostic Statistic Manual. I'm not sure if that's exactly what it's called. The <laughs> DSM-5. In the DSM-5, it lists a lot of different categories of mental illness. Um, and so some that people are really familiar with are things like anxiety or depression or bipolar disorder. Um, and they are other things like neurological things like ADD. Um, autism spectrum disorder. They can be things like schizophrenia, which is, of course, one of these more psychotic uh, mental illnesses. So there's a broad range. um, And something that's really being talked about is acknowledging sort of the nuances of of severity within those different diagnoses. But really what it boils down to for the most part is something that's gone wrong in the brain, structurally, chemically, um, some sort of imbalance or, or structural problem that is resulting in these mental illnesses being mm. manifest. So when you're when you're in your program working on your MA and you're seeing this sort of intersection between a lot of psychology research and the development of the, you know, the latest edition of the DSM and stuff like that, how did your professors, your 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 curriculum like how did you get to see that combine with with the theological side with the spiritual side? So I had the the benefit of learning about counseling and learning more about mental health and mental illness in the context of a seminary. So all of my classes were taught from a Christian worldview, 
um, with an integration of just understanding scripture and how that intersects with how we think about people overall, which I think is really helpful when we talk about mental health and mental illness, um, just to acknowledge that we are beings that are very complicated because of how God's designed us. We have bodies, we have minds, and we have souls, and just how these things intersect. Um, so that was really helpful for me to be able to engage with those potentially more secular research and and things that the psychological world is presenting um, with that sort of overlay or even that underlay of of a Christian faith perspective. Hmm. I, I'm really grateful for that opportunity because I think it, it's helped me to have a little bit more of a nuanced understanding sure. as a Christian and as someone who studied counseling to have both both things in my education. Is there a trade-off at all from like coming at it from a Christian perspective at the same time? Like, do you lose anything in doing that or is it just like raw gain? I think it would really depend on how rigorous your approach is in terms of um, absorbing and looking at data that might not totally line up with your perspective or Mm. your Christian worldview. Uh, There's a lot of intentionality that has to come into play as you engage with it. You can't just, you know, sort of interject a Bible verse uh, into a research article and and, and say, okay, I've integrated my faith Mm. with this psychological perspective. It takes a lot of wrestling. um, And I had professors who were very very research-oriented, really valued that, and so I think that helped me a lot. Um, That's not everyone's experience when they learn about counseling or mental illness, mental health, um, from a Christian perspective, but that was my experience. Absolutely. So I actually don't really know what, um, for the rest of you in the room, like what your experience with, uh, you know, mental illnesses, with with study, with training, um, with anything like that. Uh, So I'm kind of excited to to see where you guys fall in that way. but let me start out by asking, you know, when we talk about mental illness, we talk about physical illness in the church quite a bit. I mean, it's very prevalent in the Bible, and and I think we'll see that mental illness is very prevalent in the Bible as well. Um, theologically speaking, what is the difference between physical and mental illness? Is there one? When I think of Jesus, there's no incrimination either way. Hmm. He never berates anybody for their their illness, no matter what it is. Oftentimes in Christianity, we look at the demon-possessed as being people who brought it on themselves, but Jesus never said that. He would take on the worst case imaginable, the garrison demoniac, gathering demoniac, who claimed that he had 1,000 demons minimum because our name is Legion. Mm-hmm. And I've learned just through the school of hard knocks, Satan is ruthless and he jumps all kinds of people and his demons will even possess people who are very innocent. Children. My mentor, his daughter was a baby and became demon possessed. Hmm. So I know demonology and Mental illness are not 100% congruent, but there's a lot of congruency. Mm. And Jesus meets them all with open arms. One of the things that, Scott, you mentioned um, in our discussion about spiritual warfare was about the physiological effect that that demons have um, in the Bible, right? And and that we see that um, affect the the man who can't be bound, right? He breaks out out of every rope, every chain that they put on him. Chelsea, I'm not stepping out of my bounds to say that like uh, mental illness is physiological, right? Right, right. I think that that's has a lot to do with what's going on in the brain. Hmm. Um, and I think that's one of the things that's really hard about it is we're still really learning about the brain. Mm-hmm. There's so much we don't know. There's so much we don't understand. Um, and a lot of times when we don't understand something, we can't explain it, we can't measure it, we might have a tendency to spiritualize it, I hmm. think especially as Christians. Um, but I, I would really agree with Pastor Bill that there are spiritual implications within, uh, mental illness, whether or not it's directly related to something like demon possession. You know, we live in a, a sinful, broken world Mm. where sin has affected our bodies, our minds, um, so many aspects of things. It's really, it's messy. Mm. Um, so I think we do a disservice when we oversimplify and we over-spiritualize mental illness, but we also do a disservice if we don't take into account the spiritual component 
of, of mental health and mental illness. Sure. Which is really true of physical illness as well, that it's definitely like a part of our world because of the fall, because of sin. But like you were saying, Bill, and like Chelsea echoed, like it's not that question of who sinned, you know, him or his, or his parents. Yeah. So that he Absolutely. was afflicted with this for sure. So then how do we as individual believers, as a church, how do we, how do we take care of, how do we, how do we, I don't even know, like assist is too light of a word, but how do we show love? How do we treat like Jesus did the friends and the, the church family members in our lives who suffer with mental illness, you know, as much as, as those who suffer with physical illness? There's a scripture I've it's kind of been rolling around in my mind maybe the last day or so, and that's First Kings 19. It's with Elijah the prophet, and he goes has this great victory over the prophets of Baal, and then has this crisis of confidence, and almost really becomes almost like suicidal. He says to the Lord, take my life. Hmm. And is, so God leads him on kind of on this journey to, to speak to him through the desert. But I just love that his God's response when Elijah says, like, take my life from me. I don't know. I, I wish I had I rushed out of my house to come here after a meeting. I didn't bring my Bible. I had like it <laughs> highlighted there. To, like, yes, I wanted to say, like, yeah, Bill's got his Bible. Good job, Bill. Well, I'm gonna pass it to you when I find the reference. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I just love God's response that it's sit and rest. The journey is too long for you. God lays out this, you know, water and bread for him so he can continue on in the journey. It wasn't like a response of judgment. It was just a response of so much peace, love, and compassion. Mm. That really ministered to me, and kind of God showed me, like, this is the response you need to have. It'd be someone of refreshment mm. for someone, not a, not a voice of accusing or judgment. Sure. And you mean, the, like, the peace and love of God. Of like God. God is ministering oh, to him through that. Mm -hmm. Okay. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. While he himself went a day's journey in the desert, he came to a broom tree sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said, take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. All at once an angel uh, touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again and then the same thing happened. Get up and eat for the journey is too much for you, said the angel said to him. So he got up and ate and drank. Mm. I think something that is really important as we start thinking about or talking about how to care for people who are dealing with mental health challenges or even you know clinically diagnosed mental illness, we have to start having these conversations in the church. Mm -hmm. We mm -hmm. need to uh, address the stigma by just talking about it. Mm -hmm. uh, I think from the pulpit and small groups, um, helping our congregation to realize it's something that we can talk about which helps not only those who don't know much about it, but also people who are struggling who might feel like they have to suffer in silence, mm -hmm. um, that it's a reflection on their, you know, sort of mistakenly think it's a reflection on their own faith journey that they are somehow lacking, that they are mm -hmm. dealing with depression or anxiety or any other score of mental health challenges. Um, so I think that's a place we need to start is having the conversation. And I, I hope that's something we're doing a little bit here today. Yeah. Um, but I think that's a really good place to start. Amen, Chelsea. I, mm -hmm. I think a Charles Spurgeon, who is considered the greatest preacher of the English language, he had a wonderful ministry. By the time he was 19, he was preaching to 19,000 people on Sunday. <laughs> wow. And all these incredible stories of people coming to salvation by reading his sermons clear over on the other side of the world. Mm. But Spurgeon had seasons of depression where he would have to take a long leave of absence and go to really the French Riviera and just relax for weeks on end to get his mind back to where he was feeling normal again. And I think that church probably was awesome when it came to dealing with mental health because here's the pastor they all know and love and respect and he's just crippled by it. Hmm. And the church's response to him was, take as long as you need, pastor. We would rather have you come for one week a year than have another pastor. Mm -hmm. So it took a lot of pressure off of him to just really get healthy again 
but this was an ongoing fight. This mm-hmm. didn't end after one trip to right. France. Right. This just continued on and on. And it was tied into a physical affliction. He suffered with gout. And gout and depression have a way of going hand in hand. Hmm. But reading that about Spurgeon, one of my big heroes of life, made me realize, okay, this is not simply memorize another verse or pray a little harder, be more faithful in worship, Mm -hmm. be a better Christian. This man was off the charts with all of that, and he still fought depression and Mm. it made him a better pastor because he was able to empathize with people. He was able to really preach to the core of somebody's spirit because Mm. he had been in the depths. So he was able to bring something to bear when he got up to preach. Yeah. I don't know if this should go here, um, but I just wanted to share this. Um, Martin, Martin Luther, not Martin, Martin Luther said this about suicide. Uh, I don't share the opinion that suicides are certainly to be damned. My reason is that they do not wish to kill themselves, but are overcome by the power of the devil. Hmm. They are like a man who is murdered in the woods by a robber. However, they are examples by which our Lord wishes to show that the devil is powerful and Hmm. also that we should be diligent in prayer. Hmm. Something that you said, Bill, reminds me of the conversation that we had about Leviticus and we had about people having to be outside the camp, mm. um, how there's yeah. constant, you know, every, almost every day you're, you're finding yourself ceremonially unclean. And you said this thing about how, you know, children would grow up seeing Moses, this great figure outside the camp, because he too is, un, is ceremonially unclean. It's the same idea like with Spurgeon of if I'm in that church and I see this man who, again, is just like a, such a powerful instrument of, of God, and he too like struggles with the same things I struggle with. He too has to take care of himself. He too has to has to go outside the camp. Like that is powerful. Mm-hmm. And Chelsea, can you give us a little bit of of insight into you know Dan talked about how God you know provides that love and that peace and that space, right? That calm. Um, how can we as humans like what what can we do to to provide space and calm and, and love? Yeah, as I was thinking about this topic, uh, really wanting to provide some some help. This is a really difficult thing for anyone to maneuver. And I think as Christians, it's hard too because there's a lot of mixed perspectives. Some people, some Christians reject psychology altogether. Mm-hmm. They don't think mental illness is even legitimate. And so it's it's a hard thing to maneuver in general and especially as Christians. So as I was thinking about like what will be helpful, how can we equip our congregants and the people in our church and people outside of our church who love Jesus to handle, for lack of a better word, um, or address mental illness well. And I think one of the first things to do is uh, learn about it. Learn about depression, learn about anxiety. You know, some of these key key players in the mental illness game that we come in contact with Mm. often, educate yourself. I think it really helps to destigmatize your own understanding and how you might interact with someone else when you know more. Mm -hmm. Knowledge is power in that sense. And it also can really help you learn what is appropriate language to use. I had a professor who said that labels are for cans, not for people. (laughs) Uh, Labels are really sticky. Mm -hmm. And when we identify ourselves with any element of our brokenness, whether that's Mm -hmm. depression Mm -hmm. or uh, borderline personality disorder, you know, or having an eating disorder, saying I'm an anorexic, like you're you're adopting that mental illness as a label, and that has a lot of power. Mm-hmm. And how we talk about others and how we talk about ourselves and the language we use is really significant. Yeah. Um, so education is a huge is a huge part in in really using appropriate language. Um, but in terms of how can we offer comfort and sort of a calm and sit with people, I think. Something that is a tendency for most people is we try to offer advice or something that will help fix the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's often the most helpful thing to do is lean in mm-hmm. and listen mm-hmm. to this person's experience. If someone's clearly struggling or they come and they start to share something with you, it can be easy to say, oh, you know, like God's got it under control or he works out everything for good, which is not untrue, Mm -hmm. but it's also not that helpful. 
sure. in the moment. Um, and I can speak from personal experience. Mm-hmm. And really what is longed for in that moment is for this other person to invite you to share your experience. Mm. So I think it can re- be really helpful to say, help me understand yeah. what this is like for you to yeah. deal with depression. Help me understand what's your story. What does this look like in your life? Um, and as you sort of create that space with that other person, it's going to let down some of that guard, um, some of that fear that I'm not, I'm not acceptable, I'm not okay, mm-hmm. but to sort of lean in and, and be there with that person in that moment is hugely powerful. Who you are as a person is better than anything you could say. Right. I, I had never thought about you know, letting a part of your brokenness like define you and making that like a choice. Like, you know, we're built in the image of God and God tells us who we are. But if we take a label and we say like, no, this is who I am, like what a fundamental change that is in the way that I view myself and the hope for me and the future for me and God's plan for me and his love for me, like by, uh, to use Indiana Jones as a, as, <laughs> as an example, the, the best example, as, as we always like. must, uh, you know, taking, taking that, that thing right off the pedestal where it belongs, replacing it with a rock, <laughs> like the whole thing falls apart. Right. Well, a bag of sand. That's a great, that's a great analogy. That works really well. Wow. <laughs> well done, Max. Um, so, so. There's an element of that too, right? Of of saying, look, like I I love you, I know you, and I'm not afraid of of who, you know, of this battle you have, not letting that part of your brokenness take over your identity. And like I see you as you are as well. Um and I a hundred percent agree. I think it can be really hard to not jump to to not feel like stuck and be like, I got to do or say something because I love this person and they're in pain. Like, what am I supposed to do? Let me just say like anything. Um, and, and yeah, that's really powerful to just be like, no, like by being here with you and by listening and by wanting to hear the pain in you, um, you know, that's, I, I can hear that as well. Something that jumps to mind, especially when you're talking, Chelsea, that I think is probably really important is, the idea of consistency too, of not mm-hmm. just doing that on like a one-time basis and like, mm-hmm. okay, I did it, but like, mm-hmm. but walking with someone like through the pain, through the difficulty, there, whether whether that is months or years, mm-hmm. you know, being a consistent presence in someone's life, doing those same things on like a regular basis. Absolutely, that shows care. And uh, as you were talking, Max, um, I'm just thinking about lamenting. You know, as it's really hard to lament with someone. Mm. We get really uncomfortable when someone is hurting or dealing with something that's painful because we want to fix it because it also makes us feel bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and so learning how to just <clears throat> sit with it and lament with and for another person, it's it's hard, it's stretching, um, but it's really cathartic. Um, and it, it reveals to us um, another piece of, of who we are as as people who are made in God's image, um, you know, Jesus wept. Like mm-hmm. he knows what it is to feel sorrow um, for and with others. Um, so we get to share a little bit in his ministry when we lament with other people. It's a hard job for sure. For sure. As a pastor, like there are, I know you mentioned this, Max, but what is your experience? Like I I would like to continue to get training on this and learn more because I think we're faced with it almost on a daily basis, mm-hmm. working with people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'd love to get more training. So any resources you got, Chelsea, I'm yeah. happy to get them. How can yeah. we learn more? Like, what is a, a real, what is a place that you trust, like you, you find to be really beneficial, really helpful? Well, that's, I think, in some ways, a complicated question for me as someone who went to graduate school for it. So right. my, the things that I <laughs> looked at, you probably wouldn't. Um, Amen. <laughs> but uh, you, you quoted a statistic earlier that one in five adults is going to experience symptoms of a clinical mental illness in any given year. And that comes from the National Alliance on Mental Illness, mm. NAMI, N-A-M-I. Um, so that might be a good place to start. Um, in terms of some other book options... Grace for the Afflicted by Matthew Stanford mm-hmm. is another book that talks about uh, mental illness. Uh, Troubled Minds by Amy Simpson. It's Amy Simpson. And also uh, a book written by my mentor, Kristen Kinsevich. It's called On Edge, Mental Illness in the Christian Context. Um, she just tackles some really interesting questions and um, really like soundbite type chapters, you know, yeah. five or six pages long, yeah. really accessible. Um, she's a great person to look at. 
in terms of some of that as well. Um, the information out there is probably way more than you would even want. Um, <laughs> but looking at some of those more reputable, you know, government websites would probably be better than Wikipedia, for example. Sure. Um, but those are a few things that I can I can think of. Yeah. I think I would even just say if it's someone that you love. Um, Start by asking about their experience. And I'm, I know I keep pushing for that, but I think it's hugely valuable because even if you read about it, it's going to be clinical or mm. removed from the personal experience of whoever it is that you love that's dealing with it. So there's value in both sides, having objective yeah. knowledge, but also um, engaging. And if, I think if you ask those questions, it's going to move you forward with that loved one in a way that nothing else really could even if you're like i learned about depression mm. i learned all these things they're like well that's yeah. great and i've diagnosed you <laughs> i've like, diagnosed <laughs> yeah but you know i think having a posture of curiosity is is really our best bet um, sure. when engaging with people you mentioned stigmas a, a little while ago um you know i can remember plenty of times where where mental and physical uh illnesses have both caused stigmas you know within the congregation I was a part of, or, you know, even, um, you know, in, in small groups or, or whatever, um, looking at the sort of evolution that our society is going through the, the, as you said, this continued study, this continued understanding that we're developing. Like, I want to acknowledge where, you know, Christ followers have failed in the past and like, how and why is that changing? You know, how are we moving, um, towards being a church that, as Bill said, like is, is Christ-like, that is, is, uh, doesn't care about what kind of illness you have, like takes you with open arms and, and says, you know, it's the, the sick who need a doctor. Bill and I were chatting about this because I, I called him up to talk about the question because I was like, I don't have this long perspective sure. of like 68 years that Bill has like <laughs> share with me. So I'd love for you to share your insights, Bill, because you got a lot of good things to say about mm-hmm. society and where we're kind of where we've come from in the treatment of people with mental illness and all right well it came out of his concern was this question nuanced in such a way that it just makes the church look so bad mm. i said you know dan it's not just the church it's all a society absolutely mm. there was just no understanding of this so you don't have to go back too far. Maybe you've seen this movie called To Kill a Mockingbird. It's a black and white movie, mm-hmm. has a lot of big stars in it. But in the movie, there's a man who's living in the basement of a home because he's mentally ill. And there's all these rumors that swirl around him that he murdered somebody and he's dangerous and he comes out at night and there are children that live a couple of doors down and he tries to befriend them. And it's a good picture of where society was. This movie's a period picture, so it's the 1940s, as I remember. And here's a man living in a basement, and that was really common. There weren't a lot of mental health facilities. Mm-hmm. People didn't have the money to take care of their relatives that way. So they would have their aunt or their son living in the attic, living in the basement. And it was just rough on everybody. The the family that's taking care of the afflicted person, the person afflicted isn't getting better. And then as time went by in the 20th century, psychology became a discipline. People started studying it in school. It became more acceptable to talk about it. It, it. In my lifetime, I've seen a change from people being willing to talk about seeing a counselor. Mm-hmm. It, mm-hmm. That's a pretty new development. Mm-hmm. Prior to that, seeing a counselor, oh, no. Mm-hmm. You're, yes, mm-hmm. you must really, really have a big problem and I'm, I'm afraid of you mm-hmm. because everybody go gravitates to the worst you know right. you are pathological you are going to kill me and, oh my gosh no it's nothing like that so i think there's been tremendous strides made one reason why i'm a little bit more tuned into it is my father's family he's essentially an orphan and it's because his father died 
at the height of the Depression, leaving his mother with seven children. There was no such thing as Social Security. There was no welfare. And his mother lost her mind. She, thankfully, could be institutionalized. A lot of people couldn't. So they put her in Maslin, Ohio's mental institution. And the children were, thankfully, four of them were taken by the same family who owned a farm. And the state paid them a little bit of money to care for my father and three of his siblings. They grew up. They turned out real well. 30 to 40 years passed by, and the doctors say to my grandmother, you can go home now. And she said, I have nowhere to go. I've been in here my whole adult life. I'm an old woman now, and she's probably like in her 70s. And they said, okay, you can stay here. So she lived out. She lived wow. a long time, too. She lived to be 88 and died in that mental institution. That was not an unusual story, really. That that was life. Mm. Whereas nowadays, we have a lot more hope, be a lot more medications tried out, mm -hmm. released into mainstream society, and if it doesn't work out, come back. It was just a different world. Sure. I think something that it's so easy to do as Christians, because we have, we have the ultimate answer, right? Mm -hmm. We know that in the future... Jesus Christ will come again, mm -hmm. and there will be no more suffering, right. no more physical pain, there will be no more mental illness. It's like that old trope, and, and if you went to a Christian school or Sunday school, even might, they might have said this, but I heard this a lot. It's like, oh, Jesus is always the answer when you're in like a Bible <laughs> class context. Right. Jesus is always the answer. So we, And there's truth to that mm -hmm. in, in a lot of ways. Jesus is the answer, ultimately, and we all know that. Mm. And so I think there's the risk for us to take that knowledge, like Jesus is the ultimate answer, and to try to apply it right now. Mm -hmm. Jesus is the answer now, too, but to just say, like, well, just, Bill was mentioning this earlier, just trust more in Jesus, just worship more, you know, just memorize another verse, just pray harder, whatever, and, and kind of not trivializing, because those things are so, so important, but sort of trivializing this person's experience and saying, like, well, it's probably just, you know, an issue of your faith. Like, you, if you just trusted God more... I think if you've never experienced some degree of, of mental illness, whether it's just about a depression or, or anxiety or whatever, then you just you don't understand. You don't understand it can come mm -hmm. out of nowhere, and that when it happens, you're just barely hanging on. Right. Um, and you're like, I am praying. I am reading my Bible. If I wasn't, I'd probably be dead. Mm -hmm. um, these are the only things that are keeping me going. And like you know, like the, that quote from Martin Luther, like I'm not choosing to be this way. Mm -hmm. So I think that's something that not necessarily the church is a structure, but the church is Christians. So yes, the church is a structure, but just we individually, that's something that we can do that that can be really, you know, it can feel like kind of like a, a putting off of like, oh yeah, yeah, just just pray more. Yeah. Um, whereas as opposed to what Chelsea was saying earlier, really taking the time to just just listen and yeah. and pray for them and pray with them instead of just being like, oh yeah, you gotta mm. you gotta just you gotta just do your Christian stuff better. Yeah, and. I 100% agree with that idea of once, if you've experienced anything like that, then you start to have a bit of an understanding or, or, or an easier time empathizing and relating with this idea where you can say things to people that should be encouraging. But the response is like, my brain on a chemical level is not interpreting the world the way it is. It's not interpreting the way I feel, the way that it, that I do. It Like, I cannot see the world for what it is right now and that's not you know just as much as as a physical ailment could slow me down like that really makes processing my life and processing even the word of god more difficult um and until you've been in that cage a little bit and had your brain work against you a little bit it can be really hard to to relate for sure and that's the encouragement i want to give is even when you can't relate you can still be the hands and feet of God, even when you are blessed and that you haven't been in that cage. Like you can still bring the grace and the peace and the calm and the love and the, and the affirmation of the truth I see in you, the God I see in you, the, the, the image of God that you were made with. You know, you can still bring that to people who are suffering. Um, you know, Sky, you mentioned this. Uh, Bill, you brought it up. Um, I want to end by asking how does God redeem 
You know, God redeems all of the broken things in our lives, all the broken parts of us. Like, how does God redeem mental illness now? And how, in a bigger sense, you know, at the end of time, will God redeem it? The long-term answer is kind of easy. The answer is, <laughs> as Scott would say, Jesus. Jesus God, and the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there are all kinds of sufferings, all kinds of, of illnesses, all kinds of brokenness in our lives, and God does actively work to redeem them before our eyes for his glory. And that's, um, you know, we live, we exist to, to witness and to proclaim his glory. So how, how does God redeem those things today? I guess I default to 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4, which was one of the many 2 Corinthians favorite verses, one of my life and favorite verse of, you know, comforting others with the same comfort that we ourselves have received from God. That, you know, my message to anyone out there who's listening that's struggling with mental illness is you're not alone. Mm. We love you and care for you. God, and as much as we do, God does more. Mm. But he can use your experience and the comfort that he is hopefully providing you and that, that the growth that you're hopefully experiencing, your relationship with him to be... It's an encouragement to someone else too. And that's one way that God can redeem it mm-hmm. is to use it in someone else's life, so they know they're not alone either. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think of First Corinthians thirteen. I think it's verse seven. Love never fails. Mm-hmm. Now it might fail in the eyes of us, but not in the eyes of God. So mm-hmm. when we are loving the person who is bipolar and really wreaking havoc, but we keep loving them and loving them and loving them. In the eyes of God, that is success. And I believe the person who is bipolar and wreaking havoc, they begin to sense, I am loved. And healing begins to happen. It may not be completed, but at least they've had a life where they are loved. And that has a lot to commend it. Hmm. And it can help, you know, receiving that love can help with that identity crisis of, is this who I am? Am mm-hmm. I full stop bipolar, the end? Or am I more than that? Are they loving me because they're supposed to? Or are they loving me because of who I truly am? You know, are they loving me because I'm, I'm a child of God? 100%. I think of, there's some saying that Ray Anderson can recite word perfect, but I can only paraphrase it. person stands up in an AA meeting and says, I am an alcoholic. I am a cheat, a thief, a liar. I'm a despicable person worthy of God's love and respect because I'm his child. (laughs) And and so Mm. it ends on that bright note. That's awesome. I'm a child of God worthy of love and respect. And that's who they put their identity in, Mm. not all of their actions that they are repentant of. Yeah. I think, you know, God God isn't a vending machine. He's not just waiting for us to come to him with our needs and then and then we you know give them to him, he fixes our problems and we leave and that you know that's the way it's supposed to be. Like that's not the case. However, I think God can redeem mental illness um, in your life in that in some cases it probably in I'm just making this up. This might not be true, but it seems to me like probably in a lot of cases, people deal with these things with no help. You know, that when you have like a broken leg, you're like, I got to go to the doctor. Mm-hmm. But when you're experiencing depression, especially if it's not like really horrible or something you've been dealing with for a long time, you just kind of muscle through it mm-hmm. a lot of the time. I think that that's true. And I think it's just such a potent reminder. Uh, I haven't had a ton of experiences in my personal, like me, uh, with mental illness, but I have had some. Uh, I've had some seasons of depression and, and some, and, and you just, it's just such a potent reminder of your brokenness. Mm-hmm. It's like my own body is like working against me. Like I can't find my way out of this. Unlike with a physical illness, I'm not just like, oh, I'm going to go to the doctor and he'll make it okay, probably. And you can go to therapists and you can receive medication and stuff, but I think a lot of times people don't. So you're just mm-hmm. left in this, in this mire. Um, and it just, there's nowhere else for you to turn but to God. Mm-hmm. And I think in that he redeems mental illness and that he just it's such a clear in your a clear I said reminder a couple of times, but a reminder, a clear illustration in your life of your just desperate need for him. Because like if this goes on, goodness gracious, I don't know what I'm gonna do. Mm-hmm. Um if this were to go on for forever, like I couldn't live like that. Um but knowing that like I don't 
this isn't going to go on for forever. I know that God is going to end this, um, you know, in his glory. And uh, whenever that happens, I don't know. But just uh, being able to turn to God in, in those moments and, and realize that he is all sufficient for us, I think that's that's a way that he has redeemed mental illness in my life is just showing me how much I need him. I like this quote from none other than Pope John Paul II. First time mm-hmm. we're quoting a pope on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but it really speaks to this dignifying who a person with mental illness is in God's sight. It says, whoever suffers from mental illness always bears God's image and likeness in himself as does every human being. Love that. Mm. It's easy to forget that. I think in my life, um, with the various things I've struggled with, and I've shared with some people, and and I'm not shy about talking about it, um, I battled an eating disorder in college for a solid year at least, um, and I've struggled with anxiety my whole life. And I think God has really redeemed those things by not only giving me insight into an empathy for other people's experiences because comically in high school I think I literally said verbatim I'd never have an eating disorder I like food too much and then Mm. actually dealing with one realized it's so not about that Mm. um it is but it's not and I think it just kind of in some ways took me down a peg and just made me realize my own um fallibility my own weakness and in that helps me to be able to have more compassion for other people even if I don't know their exact experience um I have known struggle and it's also pushed me to be more reliant on other people God's really redeemed my mental health challenges um by bringing wonderful godly people into my life to walk with me through that Mm. mire that muck that horrible horrible season, um, just feeling really disconnected from God. So I think it's an opportunity for us as the church to love people really well when sometimes God feels so far away and we can be a human warm body in the room with them that just feels more real sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's one of the ways that God has, has redeemed my mental health challenges is by reminding me of my need for others, particularly those who are pursuing Jesus too. Man. That was a great discussion. I I love that. Um, let's transition into my colleagues' rock, uh, the part of the show um, where we get to brag about the amazing people that we work with. Scott, you're in trouble because I think you usually talk about Chelsea, but now she's here, so you have to talk about. <laughs> I don't think I've talked about Chelsea for a while. It's been a few podcasts. I, think. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't listened to the most recent one. But who's keeping track? <laughs> <laughs> I listen to the podcast. What can I say? It's good stuff. Well, I was blessed this week. The doorbell rang at around 11 o'clock this morning, uh, not this morning, Sunday morning, and looked out the window, and there was Hans and Cheryl Hoffman with a bouquet mm. of flowers for Nancy, wishing her a happy Mother's Day. Aww. And I found out that they did this for about 30 different mothers in the life of the church. Wow, that was phenomenal. Same thing happened in my house. That was, that was very unexpected, very kind. I'll give a shout out to my roommate, your co-youth director, Daniel Wright. D-dubs. I don't know what he's been doing, but I'm excited because he comes home tonight. He's been gone for two weeks. (laughs) So I miss him. him. I'm excited to have him back. And I, as always, got a shout out to the food pantry team. That ministry just keeps getting bigger and bigger, but not just, you know, it's not just about numbers. Um, It's really about just the impact that they've that they've been having. Judy this week came in and was and was just like, yeah, we were about to run out of food, and this lady came up and was like, I felt like God was telling me I need to bring you guys some cans of soup, and so like she like by the grace of God like made the last fifteen minutes of the pantry happen that day because wow. awesome. they were running out of stuff, and she just showed up, and they were like, oh gosh, like here comes a person we don't we don't have that much food for them, and then she's like, I have food for you. <laughs> So, that's so that's cool. Amazing. Oh man, God just—what an awesome place for God to just like kind of show up and show off and mm-hmm. and build build His relationship with the people who are serving and the people who are receiving. That's amazing. Now with Krispy Kreme donuts. Now with Krispy Kreme. If you I have some in my fridge. Donuts, <laughs> ugh, I had them and then I ate them and I wish I hadn't. You said one a day. Did you stick to your rule? I stuck to one a day until I got to the last three, 
And then I was like, power through. I'm doing it all today. <laughs> that's 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 the difference between me and Bill Calvin. I don't eat the one baby Ruth a month. <laughs> Truly. Uh, listeners, if you'd like to be part of the show, you can send questions, would you rather's, trivia quizzes, and Krispy Kreme donuts to podcast <laughs> at bloomingdalechurch.org. Uh, to close the show this week, we are bringing back an old segment, The End of an Era, the part of the show where we're not sad it's over. We're happy that it happened. Uh, next Thursday marks Ascension Day on the Christian calendar, which is the day that Jesus ascended into heaven 40 days after his resurrection. I honestly, been a lifelong Christian, didn't know Jesus was on earth for 40 more days after he was resurrected before he ascended. That's a lot of time. It's amazing. That's one of the reasons why the faith really took hold. Of it. He appeared to so many people. Wow. Yeah, I guess that's true. And that's why you know Paul talks about he appeared to hundreds and thousands of people, and many of them are still alive. Ascension Day marks like the end of the Easter season, and so too the end of Dan's illustrious title as Easter trivia champion. Dan, doesn't that go a full year? Dan, as as this. <laughs> Only till the end of the Easter season. Jesus, he's the one who ascended. The title goes away after the day of ascension. When Jesus goes back to heaven, (laughs) he takes your title with him. Dan, uh, (laughs) this is your last week as our champion. Uh, would you share a few words with us about what it takes to be the best? For the listeners at home, Dan looks so sad right now. <laughs> nah, I'm not sad. I'm just messing around. I have a new title for you. I'm very excited to unveil next week. Ooh, I'm excited for it to be unveiled. <laughs> but what it takes to be the best? Well, what it takes to be the best, in my opinion, based on the Bible, mm-hmm. uh, is being a servant of other people. Is not Aww. Son of Man did not come to serve, to be served, but to serve. <laughs> Mess that one up. <laughs> They're not come to be served, but to serve. And mm. so I think there's we're the best when we're at the lowest point, serving other people, lifting other people up. Mm. Yeah. All right. Maybe you can stay the Easter champion. <laughs> Maybe one more week. Well said. Uh, that is all the time we have this week. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Chelsea. Thank you, Max. Thank you, Max. Thank you, Max. That's what I thought, Bill. <laughs> Bill, take us home. I'm still picturing Jesus ascending into heaven, and he's got this certificate that belongs to Dan Marcello. I'm trying to jump after him. Oh, man. You have been listening to the Bloomingdale Church Podcast, Bloomingdale, Illinois, the heart of the nation. I told the story to Nancy and she said, oh, golly, what are you going to be like when you're an old man? I said, yeah, it's going to be exciting. (laughs) (laughs) Police will be at our house every day.